0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us the way of life and flee the way of death, that we may dwell now and in eternity in your vineyard of goodness. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. In his book, Rediscovering Holiness, the great Anglican theologian J.I. Packer starts with a poem by Rudrick Rudrick Kipling called The Way Through the Woods. The Way Through the Woods reads as follows. They shut the road through the woods 70 years ago. Weather and rain have undone it again, and now you would never know that there was once a road through the woods. Before they planted trees, it is underneath the copus and heath and the thin anemones. Only the keeper sees that where the ring-dove broads and the badger rolls at ease, there was once a road through the woods. Yet if you enter the woods on a summer evening late, when the bright night air cools and the trout-ringed pools, where the otter whistles at whistles his mate they fear not men in the woods because they see so few you will hear the beat of horses' feet and swish of the skirt in the dew steadily cantering through the mist of solitude as though they perfectly knew the old lost woods the lost road through the woods but there is no road through the woods Pecker picks up on this poem and uses it as an illustration for where the church is at today. His argument is that we have forgotten the way of holiness. The way of holiness is a way of life. It is the way to life. It is the way of living. It seems, though, that that way has been shut up for so many, much as the road through the woods. We prefer so often the way of the world, which is the way of death. We prefer to fight culture wars that we've already lost instead of sharing the gospel that changes lives that changes lives in a way that would change the culture around us. We prefer to bicker and fight over mundane issues instead of seeking a life of holiness in communion and unity with one another. We prefer self-justification, over self-denial and death to our sins. Sin means that we prefer the way of death over the garden of life or the vineyard of holiness. These self-justifying ways are nothing new. We can go back to Adam and Eve and see them when they deny that they or, or try to push off the fact that they eat the fruit that they were told not to but we don't even need to go back that far. We simply need to go back to the lesson last week where Jesus is confronted by the religious authorities and they ask him, well, whose authority do you teach on? And when they're challenged on asking this, we're left with that cliffhanger that we were left with last week where Jesus simply says to them, I will not tell you whose authority I bear. The parable this morning is tied back to this confrontation, and they really go together. But it is more than that because it illustrates something very important. We start with the imagery of this brand new, beautiful vineyard. If you pause and imagine it, perhaps you can smell the new wood or the, fresh, the freshly hewned gravel or, or see the new plants rising up out of the ground. The imagery of the vineyard is an important part of the promise of the covenant that is given to Israel before they enter into the promised land. If we go back to chapter 6, as that covenant is started, it includes the Shema, which you may know, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Perhaps this is familiar to you, even if you don't know what the Shema is, because it's what Jesus draws on when he spells out what the greatest commandments are. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophet. We're reminded of this each week when we go to the Lord's table, and it's the start of that first covenant, But chapter 6 continues on. It makes clear what the promises of obedience to God, what the promises are if one is obedient to God's law. And part of that promise is to inherit the land, and in that land they would inherit vineyards. Vineyards that they would simply be given. If we carry on in Deuteronomy after all the law is spelled out, we get to the end of this where the covenant is almost stamped as a, as a charge to them, this is this is like the signing of the covenant between God and His people. And in verse in chapter thirty, verse five, it continues on, and God says to His people, "See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His way, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then." You will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away, you will not hear, you will, and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. The exhortation that God makes here to his people is clear. Obey my commandments and choose life. The law was meant to show what the good life was. But the history of Israel is messy. As we read on in in the Old Testament and we get to the book of Judges, it ends with this poignant statement, this heartbreaking statement. The last two sentences in the book of Judges is this. In those days, there were no, was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a harsh view of the world, what the world was like. And it doesn't often get much better of it. Much better. Of course, there are high points with King David and some of his offsprings where they remind the people to obey the law that God has given and do everything they can to do so. But by the time we get to Isaiah, we get to a turning point. And that turning point comes up in chapter 5 of Isaiah. <clears throat> and we get the imagery that we start to see today. In chapter 5, verse 2, Isaiah writes to the people that God, He dug it and cleared it of stones, that is a vineyard, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes see by the time we get to isaiah israel is now split and isaiah is writing to the southern province to the southern tribe of judah and isaiah starts with this judgment of their disobedience and chapter five ends up being this really harsh judgment that yes, God had planted them in a vineyard, but they had neglected the vineyard, and now wild grapes were growing. As we work our way through the prophets, the prophets remind us again and again of this vineyard, but there starts to be hope as well, primarily that that vineyard would be restored. So, to those who read, or to those who were hearing Jesus' words this morning, or who were reading it, along the way, would know what Jesus was referring to. He was referring especially to that of Isaiah 5, 2. But the reality is the vineyard is a privilege, is the privilege of being God's chosen people. It represents the plenty of God's blessing and the life of hol- and holiness that comes from obedience to him. But sin makes it impossible To be obedient without Christ, without Christ, we again and again will choose the way of death. His people did this, and lest we think too highly of ourselves, we also do this when we do not, when we do are not abiding in Christ. His love, in His love, God sends prophets again and again to remind Israel of their calling. Now, now often when we hear about prophets, we kind of want prophets to be these people with this little spiritual antenna that has this perfect vision of what God wants to say and sort of spits it out. And certainly there are some prophets that are oracles as well. But the true calling of a prophet and even the function of those oracles is that they would be covenant enforcers. I love that term. Covenant enforcers, and it kind of makes them sound like they're running around and writing people covenant speeding tickets or something. But what it really means is that they were to remind the people to love the Lord their God and to love their neighbor. In other words, the goal of the prophet was again and again to call people back to life, to call people back to holiness to call people back to the law that they've abandoned. And in a sense, this is what the minister of the gospel is called to as well. He is called to be a prophet. The reason we gather together and hear a sermon isn't just to fill up my week with something to do. It's so that we are reminded, both me and you, of the necessity that we repent again and again and again that we repent and return to the way of life, that we repent and return again and again to the foot of the cross. Because we need this reminder week in and week out that he has already purchased us from the way of death. We need to be reminded that God has already reopened that old way, the way that was overgrown with sin, He has reopened the narrow way. He has done this for you in Christ. But as a rule, we do not like to have our sins pointed out to us. We tend to be petulant children when somebody says, I think you need to repent. We tend to find all the reasons that we can that that's not true. When the reality is, is we need, need repentance every day. We like to justify our sins or worse, we like to play the victim. For a moment, I want to invite you to think about this past week. When you sinned, did you run back to the cross brokenhearted? Or did you find justification for that sin? Did you make an excuse? Now we get to verse six. For whatever reason, verse six and verse seven tend to kind of puzzle people, right? We get to verse six and and he says, Jesus says, he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. People tend to think, well, why in the world Would this man send his son? These people have already done all of these awful things. They beat them and they killed them and all of that. Why would they do this? He sends his son because it's the only way for people to be drawn out of the way of death. The only way that you and I will be drawn out of the way of death is because God sent his son. His son and he knowing full well what would happen. That he would die but that was in order to bring us life and to usher us in to the way of life. And likewise, verse seven is equally confusing because they continue, those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and his inheritance will be ours. There's some really fascinating hypotheses, but your question of why did they kill him? What did they think that would make their lives any better if they did that? Is a good question, and and the hypotheses are pretty out there. But what's happening here is that in God sending his son, or rather, what's happening here is it's revealing how deep and destructive sin is. Sin makes you irrational, sin is like an addiction. If you've ever talked to somebody who struggled with addiction and either heard the beginning of their addiction story or, or just talked to them about their daily struggle with that, you know that there are a thousand excuses for them to go back to that and a thousand reasons that it keeps happening. And nine times out of ten, they're not very rational. Sin is the same way. And that's what this part reveals. These people are not thinking clearly because they've been affected by their sin. And there are no parts of our lives outside of Christ that has not been infected. It is only with Christ that we are freed from them. But this is a message that we so desperately want to buck against. And chances are some of you feel a little cringy that we're talking so much about sin because the temptation is always to justify our actions. But this passage leaves no room for that. The obvious climax of this parable itself comes when the tenants kill the son. And this, of course, points us to Christ and his own crucifixion. Here there's an interplay happening. As Jesus tells the story, we must remember that Jesus also knows the heart of all people. And we know from previous chapters that the the leaders are scheming, they're seeking his destruction. They're seeking to destroy Jesus, and Jesus knows this and knows what is going to happen. But Jesus has a stern warning for them. It may seem like your victory is coming, but destruction is coming. Judgment is coming, not only that the promised vineyard would be, and not only that, but the promised vineyard is going to be taken away from you and given to someone else. My friends, you are invited to the way of holiness. But the way of holiness is hard. But it is also the way of life. We have a way of culturally adopting our faith. We go through the motions and it can look really good. But Jesus is calling the leaders and Jesus is calling you this morning to be transformed, to true transformation, to come to life, the life that only comes through him, to come to genuine holiness. The true climax of this little passage comes in verse 10 and 11. When Jesus quotes Psalm 118, the stone that the builder has rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's interesting if you go back and read Psalm 118. I'm not going to do that this morning, but you can. The Psalm 118 is a psalm of thanksgiving for how God has delivered the psalmist. This particular verse reminds the reader how God turns things around in ways that often we least expect it. This is what he does in the psalm, and it is the deliverance, and this is what the deliverance of Christ is like in the psalm it goes back and forth reminding the reader to dwell in the lord to not trust in men but how god will and reminds him how god will give him deliverance god god will give the psalmist deliverance from the oppression of men by the time we get to verse 22 and 23 in the psalm comes upon this unexpected stone this stone that seems no good to the world This stone that those who are intelligent in their own eyes push away and get rid of. And then we learn from here that Christ is this unexpected stone. This stone that the intelligent will ignore. The stone that will be discarded by so many who wish to only dwell in the world. But Jesus invites you invites all who come to him through life through him as unexpected as this might be the stone is jesus and jesus invites you into the vineyard of faith into the vineyard of holiness into the vineyard of life the lesson ends today with the religious leaders slinking away but they don't just leave they leave to scheme they have been already challenged on two fronts and they recognize and they do not and we see that they do not recognize Jesus's authority and they not only that he knows that they are scheming not just to arrest him but kill them so not only have they refused the authority that brings life they are actively choosing death they're choosing not only death but to kill goodness how often do we refuse to choose life how often have you chosen death the vineyard parable this morning shows us two groups of people those who choose to live in the in the vineyard in obedience to God through Christ and those who have and those, those who have life through Christ. And then the second group are those who reject Christ and are thrown out of the vineyard, who refuse to enter into life, who prefer the way of death. This vivid dichotomy of the way of life and the way of death goes back to the first century Christians. The earliest writing that we have available is called the Didache. And in that, it starts with an invitation to choose between these two lives. Whoever wrote the Didache writes to the early Christians and says there are two ways, one of life and one of death. But there is a great difference between the two. The way of life is this, is then this. First, you shall love the Lord your God who made you. And second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and do not do do to another what you would not want done to you. It goes on for three and a half chapters to describe what this looks like. And then in chapter five, we pick up, and the way of death is this. First of all, it is evil and accursed. Murderers, adulterers, lust, fornication, thefts, idolatry, magic arts, witchcraft, rape, false witness, hypocrisy, double-heartedness, deceitfulness, haughtiness, depravity, self-will, greediness, filthiness, Filthy talking, jealousy, overconfidence, loftiness, boastfulness, persecutors of the good, hating truth, loving a lie, not knowing a reward for righteousness, not cleaving to good nor to righteous judgment, watching not for which is good, but for what is evil. From From whom meekness and endurance are far, loving vanity, pursuing revenge, not pitying a poor man. Not laboring for the afflicted, not knowing him who made them murderers of children, destroyers of the handiwork of God, turning away from him, who want, afflicting him who is distressed, advocating advocates of the rich, lawless judges of the poor, utter sinners, be delivered children from all these things. That is all the author bothers to write about the way of death, but we see that it is expansive. And just as the Didache hearkens us away from the way of death and to the way of life, so Jesus this morning invites us into the way of life, into the vineyard of life, into that promised land of holiness. There are two ways, the way of death and the way of life. Which way shall you choose? The wide gate that is away from God into self-imposed death, or the narrow gate of Christ himself, into God's vineyard, into holiness, into life in Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.